Hello and welcome back to another episode of Business of Film. My name is Jesse Eichmann and this is episode number 78. Today we are taking our show on the road. We're going to the offices of Random House where we are interviewing Alain Mestai. Now, Alain is a working Hollywood screenwriter. He is somebody who makes his living in the screen trade. He's written The F Word starring Daniel Radcliffe and Zoe Kazan. Uh, he's written The Samaritan starring Samuel L. Jackson. He's a guy that works in Hollywood. But he is also a novelist. His first novel, All Our Wrongs Today, which drops uh, February 7th, depending on when you're listening to this. Uh, First of all, it's a great book. Definitely recommend that you check it out. It is a sci-fi novel. We get into that. A lot of fun. But what's really cool is, not only is this his first novel, but he also optioned his novel to a major Hollywood studio. He's writing a screenplay and adapting his own novel uh, and the book is going to be distributed by Paramount so there's a lot to dig into on this episode we talk about his book we talk about the craft of, the craft of screenwriting uh, both actually the craft of screenwriting and writing the novel we talk about what the process all that behind the scenes good stuff a uh, lot of fun and I really do hope that you enjoy this episode and if you do please subscribe uh, leave a comment. We love that stuff. Uh, would love to hear from you. And it really helps just in general. So, you know, if you like it, subscribe. And that's cool. Thank you. Also, one other quick thing. If you want to watch part of the episode, I've got a highlight reel um, of this episode. You can uh, check out Alain and I talking about this stuff on YouTube. Just go to youtube.com forward slash Jesse Eichmann and you can watch it there j-e-s-s-e-i-k-e-m-a-n that's me and it's fun so check it out there if you like as well all right here we go uh with business of film and alain mestai i picked up the book publisher sent it to me friday uh at uh, at a 1 p.m by sunday at 11 i was done i devoured <laughs> wow. it I, de- I devoured the book and uh, i tip my hand to you uh tell our audience a little bit about what all Our Wrongs Today is, uh, is all about. Sure, yeah. The, all Our Wrongs Today is, is set in the present, in 2016, but it's the 2016 that people in the 1950s thought we were going to have, this kind of techno-utopian paradise with flying cars and you know, robot maids and teleportation and all this kind of fantastical technology, which doesn't mean that you know, everybody's life is perfect. A lot of human, humanity's problems have been solved, but individuals still have their own personal obstacles. Um, through like an accident with like a stolen prototype time machine, my protagonist, Tom, um, finds himself stranded in our 2016, what we think of as the real world, which to him seems like this terrifying dystopia where everything's gone wrong. Of course, he wants to get back to the way the world is supposed to be, but along the way, he discovers these very unexpected versions of the people in his life, the woman he has this romantic connection with, and even himself. He's a very different person in this version of the world, and so it starts to complicate things, and um, I think putting aside all the big plot twists and kind of sci-fi ideas, fundamentally this is a, a story about a, a person who kind of figures out what gives his life meaning. You know, it's sort of asking that sort of philosophical question, like what makes you happy, what kind of life do you want to live, but you know, it's doing it hopefully in a sort of very fun, kind of right. propulsive, page-turning kind of way. So where, where did the idea first come from? Because you're... You're a screenwriter, right. or you were a screenwriter, now you're both a screenwriter and an right. author. Yeah. What, tell me, what was the impetus to write, sit down and write a novel? I mean, it was specific, on one hand, to this story. You know, I had this idea, actually, in, like, 2009, originally. Um, 
and I thought about it as a movie for, for a long time, but you know, when I have an idea for a movie, I actually like to sit on it for a while because, as you know, like the process of making a movie takes so long. It's so Byzantine and preposterous that unless you like really are committed to the idea, why even start? So I usually sit on an idea for a while uh, before I decide if I'm gonna write it and try to make a go of it. But as I started to sit with this idea and let the ideas marinated, I, I just, it just kept getting bigger and more expansive and I realized the way I wanted to tell it was as a novel, particularly as a first person narrative. The, the access to the, the first person, the point of view of the main character, the interiority. Um, and so now, as a screenwriter, that was like, oh, well, that's like a whole other thing. Like, I don't have any experience in publishing. I don't have a literary agent. I don't have a book deal. But I, I just felt really compelled. And then the flip side of it was, you know, I've been writing movies for a number of years. Um, you know, I've been working both in the independent scene in Canada, uh, as well as the studio system in the U.S. My most recent movie um, was called The F Word. It was called What If in the U.S. with Daniel Radcliffe and Zoe Kazan, Adam Driver. Um, and I think I was also looking for a new challenge. You know, like, it wasn't that I thought I'm like the greatest screenwriter of all time and I have nothing left to learn, but I think I was finding a little bit like the form of screenwriting, as much as I enjoy the process of making movies, I was finding myself like it's the same writing style over and over again. Screenplays are written in the third person. It's a present tense, very lean, very laconic writing style. You have no access to interiority. It's all external right. behavior, yeah. right? Um, and it's very, you know, very visually dynamic. But I, I guess I was just, I was looking to kind of like shake it up a little bit. So when I started this novel, it wasn't like I had some big grand master plan. Did you start in 2009? You first no, I started in 2014. Okay, so you actually, so you've been marinating on this for yeah, five, yeah. six years. Yeah, and once I, yeah, I had the idea and I, I just couldn't quite figure, out, figure it out. And then finally, it was in 2014, um, and I was just going on the press tour actually for the F word, right, when it was coming out. Yeah. Um, it occurred to me that the way to tell the story the way I, I really wanted to, but was having trouble with, was as a novel, particularly as a first person to write it as like a memoir. And once I had that idea, I got really excited and I started writing it right away. Um, but, I, but because I have a day job, which is screenwriting, obviously it's not your typical day job, but that, that is my job. Um, I, I, like a lot of first-time novelists, I wrote this book on the side, like evenings, weekends, um, just whenever I, I carved out a little bit of time every single day to just get a little bit done. And that, that accumulated and I started to get really excited about what what was happening. Yeah. As a writer, it was very liberating. It was very different. It's a bit intimidating writing in a whole other form. But um, I, I just really was enjoying it. And so I just kind of stuck with it. And, and, I, and, I, and I wanted to take that sort of like fun that I was having writing the book uh, and hopefully, you know, find a way to translate that to the reader. The book was super fun to read. Like, I, I'm going to come full circle. The reason why I almost killed both my kids is because I'm neglecting them with my head, right. you know, down in the book, you know, and yeah. eh, whatever. I'm well, going to get into how I, how yeah. I told them. I think that's probably Are they okay? Are they in the hospital? Okay, good. Well, there will be no libel suit. Well, as long as they safe. survived, then I think we're, we came out okay. We came out the other end, and uh, and I thoroughly, I thoroughly enjoyed the book. And you know, the funny thing is, I'm, as a screen person in the screen trade, mm. I'm sure you, you, you have this thing where you, you get a screenplay, you, you get to the first page, and you want it to be good. Like, right. you like you don't know if a screen... Like, most screenplays are not good. Yeah. They're not good, right? 99.9% of screenplays are not good, right? But you always want it to be good. Yeah, of course. So I, I attacked your book with the same sort of, you know, because you're a screenwriter. So I was like, okay, I want it to be good. Sat down in a diner with a Reuben sandwich, started reading, and just didn't, and just didn't stop. But... It's a very, very, very complicated idea that you've got. Like it mm. was like a, it, it's a sci-fi. You're dealing with time travel. It's really, really, really complicated. So I want to come back to that first time you had that idea. Mm -hmm. When you say you had that idea in 2009, what was the actual kernel? What was that idea? Right. Well, I mean, 
I feel like a lot of my ideas are actually, what happens is I have a lot of different ideas for, for stories, and then every once in a while I'll realize, oh, if I combine those two ideas, that's the story. Right. So, it, so what it was for me was, since I was a kid, I've been interested in this idea of the, the future that didn't happen, you know? My grandfather was a, was a chemist, and he had this extensive collection of science fiction, um, novels, anthologies, all the kind of old pulp paperbacks from like the 40s, 50s, 60s, and as a kid, I, I loved them. I particularly loved like the covers and all these sort of like lurid kind of garish images of like the few, you know, scientists and adventurers and robots and aliens. Like I just, I just loved that stuff. But even as a kid in the 80s, I was aware that that future didn't happen, it wasn't happening the way that they thought it was going to. Right. Um, you know, I didn't get a jetpack for my birthday, uh, and I and then that and that sort of dovetailed. I, I'm from Vancouver. I grew up in Vancouver, and uh, Expo '86 happened when I was a kid, and it like totally captured my imagination. I loved Expo '86 with the monorails and the robots, and again these visions of the future. And um, you know, Expo '86 was part of this. Uh, continuity of, you know, the World's Fairs, right? The New York World's Fair of yep. 64, Expo 67. And, and they, part of what they were about was about imagining the future. And it's interesting, because I only discovered this recently, that Expo 86 was actually the last World's Fair that was ever hosted in North America. We haven't done a World's Fair here since then. It's like we stopped hmm. dreaming of the future yeah. in the same way. But it, it really captured my imagination. And so um, for a long time, I've been wanting to tell a story that was set in that version of the present. Um, and the reason I say I had the idea in 2009, because my first notes on it are, say, like, you know, the, this other version of 2009, the 2009 uh, that, that, you know, people in the 1940s and 50s thought we were going to have. I've updated it to 2016 now, because right. it took me a while. But, um, so there was that, and then... You know, I noticed that there's this strain that was developing in, in a pop culture about dystopia. You know, um, whether it's YA literature, uh, The Hunger Games, or Divergent, or you know, movies, television, just this sort of like dystopian imaginings of what the future is going to be. And I, I, I had the idea of like, well, what if somebody from my grandfather's generation or my grandmother's generation came to now, 2016, to the present, 2017 now? Um, you know, they would look around and say, yes, we have all this kind of like amazing technology, but from a, like a political, a cultural, you know, standpoint, it like they would think this is a dystopia. Like all those, all the, you know, crime and disease and poverty and, and famine and, and war, all those things we, they thought technology was going to solve for us, it didn't. Right. In fact, things may be even worse. And so I like the idea of like, having somebody come to our version of the world and see it with fresh eyes and see this is a dystopia. The dystopia isn't in the future, it's now. And then I realized, what I realized in 2014, or sorry, what I realized in 2009 was that I could combine those ideas. Somebody from this alternate utopian version of the present, not the future, but the present, coming here, finding themselves here, and looking at our world with fresh eyes and being both horrified by what they see at first, but then starting to understand the complexity, the messiness, the, the, the subtleties and nuances of our world and realizing it's, it's not black and white, you know, uh, and starting to embrace the kind of the gray zones and, and that, 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 that sort of a sense of meaning and happiness and purpose and responsibility can come out of that, the gray zones of our world. So it, it didn't come into your head as like this fully formed thought that this guy from a future that didn't happen goes back to the past and then... No, yeah, as I started to have the idea, like, no, that that sort of the the overarching, the architecture of the story came to me fairly quickly once I combined those two ideas. And so elements like um, who the main character would be, uh, how he would, you know, who his father was, 
his relationship with his father as this invent genius inventor, his own sense of being a, a failure and a disappointment, not just because he hasn't sort of figured out his place in the world, but because his father is so successful, how is he ever going to match that? You know, he's never going to be more impressive than his own father. So he feels like he's, he's been a failure from the moment of his birth because he was sort of like, he's never going to be able to reach that level himself. And then the, the sort of the general architecture going back in time, causing this accident in the past that causes the timeline to reset and finding himself stranded in this alternate present, all that stuff came to me pretty quickly. But um, figuring out you know, who the characters are, what the actual themes that would drive it, how to really tell the story, that took a little longer. And then the research for the space-time continuum, because you make a pretty big point yeah. in the very beginning that the way Terminator and Back to the Future and all these other movies conceptualize time travel is just wrong. Yeah. But this is really the way it works. Yeah. So the way it, quote-unquote, really works, how did you... Come to that. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a, I mean, it's always been a pet peeve of mine of, about time travel narratives that they always act as if you can just like open a portal or a door to the past and walk through, and you'll just be right back on the planet. Right. When of course we know that the Earth is moving very, very quickly through space, and we never go back to where we were. We're constantly spinning in place, rotating around the sun. The sun is moving through the galaxy. We're constantly in motion, and so I like the idea of trying to come up with a model of time travel that took orbital mechanics. Seriously. Um, now, I'm not a physicist, obviously. I'm a screenwriter, but I just find this stuff interesting. So I just, you know, part of having, you know, the five years between having the idea and actually sitting down to write it, I just did a lot of research. Not because I was like, oh, one day I'm going to actually write this novel, but because I'm like, well, I'm interested in this, so let me see if I can figure it out. Part of the, one of the things I got from my grandfather, who, as I said, was a chemist and trained in science, you know, he, he loved science fiction, but he grumbled a lot that, you know, they never take the science seriously. And in fact, the science is very fascinating. If the writers would just take the time to actually explore this stuff, you know, it would, the stories would be even better. And I actually found that that, like... Well, you explore, I mean, you, you explore it and you explain it, not only eloquently in yeah. your novel, but is it um, an accurate... Uh, is that what physicists right now thinks time travel should theoretically look like? Yeah, I mean, one of the best... Uh, there's, a, there's a time component and there's a spatial component. Yeah. Maybe you just want to explain it because I think it's, it is fascinating. Oh, sure. I mean, I mean... A quick little, like, how does your time travel work or that time travel work? Right, well, so how my time travel works is um, there's a form of radiation. Like, it uses radiation to track... The, orbit, the orbital mechanics of the planet. And so, because you're trying to land on a very specific location in a, on a spinning sphere that's moving, hurtling through outer space, uh, you use the sort of radiation trail through time and space to track, to reverse the orbital mechanics. So not only are you, you're, are you traveling back in time, but you're also able to land you know, right in this exact plot you want to be. Now, of course, you do cheat a few things. For example, in this version of the world, teleportation works. The ability to kind of like take apart and put uh, an organic, you know, object, a person together at the atomic level. So I'm obviously like drawing off some other, you know, things that I'm saying are kind of gimmies. Like you have to, you have to have the gimme that tel teleportation works. So if you if you have working teleportation, which I have to tell you we do not have right now, but if you do have it, then I then the exact same. But the principles of teleportation are there. We can't right now. Um, take somebody apart and put them back together, but we can teleport atoms. And so it's taking the principles that do exist and just kind of like expanding right. them. Um, you know, one of the things I talk about is the difference between teleporting uh, an object like a, like a rock or a piece of metal and teleporting a person is, uh, we're made up of 37 trillion cells, but each one of our cells has a DNA map of us. So it's like you're not just teleporting a person back in time, you're teleporting 37 trillion maps of that person back in time. So in, in, in once you work out the mechanics of the science, it could actually be easier to teleport organic matter back because you're sending 
the instruction manual with them. Right. We all carry the instruction manual of who we are inside our right. body. Um, and so what, that's what I mean when I say, like, when you do the research about this stuff, you actually find, oh, like, science is actually pointing me not just in the way that's more accurate, but actually opening up all these storytelling possibilities. And so, again, I like to take that stuff as seriously as possible, but it, it, the reader doesn't need to wade through all my research. Like, you don't want to read five years of my research. What you want to read is a very lucid, casual, fun way of explaining it, which is what I, so that's why I do the research, is so that when I explain to you in the book, like, even just now you're asking me the question, I explain it much more clearly in the book because I have time to right. write it or rewrite it and you can read it. Like, now I'm like, okay, well, let me explain how astrodynamics works. But, I mean, part of my job as a writer is to make it feel effortless to you when you read it. So, uh, and it did, and it did. Good. Um, uh, I want to I want to just peek a little behind the curtain about the, the process. I know you've been you've been on this tour. Mm -hmm. People who are listening to this podcast, uh, the Business of Film podcast. I want to just I want to give uh, our listeners a little bit of that behind the scenes process of what you went through. So you first of all, just on 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 the craft side of the writing, you said you were chipping away at this. Mm -hmm. Were you doing like did you have like a set? Uh, schedule like how did you actually approach because your, your day job is writing a writing screenwriting so was this like did you have a schedule in your head I would I would write a few pages a day and see where this went were you confident in yourself like what like that, that you would get to the end like mm. just take me through that process of actually sure. doing this for the first time so the very beginning of the process I was actually just about to go on press tour for the F word yep. and when you're on press tour you know uh, I'm doing it right now for this book right so it's kind of full circle you're scheduled and you know you're constantly being scheduled you're you're telling this, a lot of the same stories over and over again. Obviously, you try to mix it up for each person, but there is a sense of your life being on this weird loop, you know? And you're in hotels, you're in foreign cities, you're in other cities, you're not in your regular life. I wasn't getting much of a chance to write. I, I'm the kind of person I like to write every day. So what I did was I was like, well, you know what? I, I really want to try to write this novel. I don't know if it's going to go anywhere. I didn't tell anybody I was going to start it. I just was like, I'm going to start it for myself, mm -hmm. see where it goes. So I made myself the goal is I was going to write 250 to 500 words a day every day, only 250 to 500 words, like a, a long essay, you know? Um, uh, so I, if I could just do just that small amount every single day, but do it every single day, and I would see where I was at the end of the press tour. And, um, and so one of the reasons why, you know, the book has very short chapters, and I like that because it makes it a real page-turner, it's very propulsive, but part of the, the original reason why it has such short chapters is because each chapter reflected one day's work. And so each of those little chapters was how, what I got written that day. So Funny, I, I was wondering about that. Like, well, that yeah. was a uh, conscious, I mean, obviously it was a conscious choice, but it just seemed to be like fit into your life. Yeah, it was like a retroactively conscious choice. Yeah. Like, w like when I got off the press tour and looked at what I had, I was like, I actually really like this. I'm going to keep it. I'm going to keep doing it. And so I was like, and this whole thing of like just writing the short chapters, it wasn't just that it was convenient to be able to sort of squeeze it into my life, but it was also, I liked the aesthetic of it. I felt like it was... Um, it was working for this kind of story I was going to tell, the pace of the story. Right. And so, and also, I look back on it now, I didn't really think about it at the time, but I'm a screenwriter, so short scenes, I'm comfortable with short scenes. You know, the average scene in a screenplay is like two pages long, right? right. Um, you know, you deliver somebody a screenplay and there's like an eight-page scene in it, they're like, why is this, like the scene just seems to go on forever, right? Unless it's like a Kubrick movie or something. Um, and so... I just really like that aesthetic. So that's what I did. I, I stuck to it. And by writing every single day, just a short amount every day, 250, 500 words, uh, in about five months, I had a 
first draft. And then, I, and then I liked it. I liked what I, 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 I had. I, I was feeling really invigorated as a writer. Like I, and so I decided to kind of like front burner it. Instead of it being like a, a thing I was doing on the side, I'm like, I'm going to take some time. I'm going to start the rewriting process and get this to a place where I would feel ready to try, try to get a book agent, try to get a um, get publisher. What did that first publisher. draft look like? Like how, how much work, when you, when you finished your first draft, was it a lot of work to get to where it is now? Or was it, like how much heavy lifting did you go through? I mean, the whole process from, so I started writing the book in July 2014. So you had three editors credited on this book. Yeah, I mean, I had three editors in that because I had a U.S., Canadian, and U.K. publisher. Right. Each of them had editorial input. But the way, I mean, we're jumping ahead, but the way, they, they all basically, on every every draft, they consulted, and then they delivered me one consistent set of notes. So, okay. uh, so they, I wasn't getting three, I wasn't getting hit from three sides. I was getting one consistent set of notes, and then I could follow up with individual editors if I wanted to talk through certain elements of it. Um, but I, it wasn't, it, it was actually a very gentle editorial process. Uh, everybody was, because I sold a finished manuscript. Okay, so, so that, okay, that piece right there, because I, I just jumped ahead to you, yeah. you had three editors, but right. you, you so had a first draft. I wrote a first draft. It took about five months to write. Um, it wasn't. Like, it's a, a much less polished, obviously, version than the one that's being published. I was just, you know, writing every day. I wrote it almost, I wrote it pretty much uh, sequentially, you know, just one chapter at a time. But then I had a finished draft, and I'm a big believer um, that until you have a finished draft of anything, you don't even know what you have, you know? And I think that's just drilled into me from years of being a screenwriter. So I, um, it wasn't really until I had a finished draft, I'm like, okay, now I know what this is. Now I need to start thinking about, okay, I'm going to move stuff over, what's working, what isn't. And so then I did another couple, I did two more drafts kind of on my own um, before I showed, ever showed it to anybody. And then by the end of what was my third draft, I had a manuscript that I was pretty happy with. And I started, so I showed it to a few people, got some feedback, and then I started going out looking for a book agent that would be interested in kind of taking it out into the publishing world. Um, Getting a book publisher. Yeah. How did you go about that? Because you're a screenwriter, now entering right. a very, very, very different world? Yeah, totally different. Okay. I mean, there are some similarities, but no, they're totally different worlds, and I didn't have any overlap. But I, but I, I did go about it in a totally uncommon way. Like, the typical first-time novelist would be going about it in a very different way than I did. Um, so, for, you know, um, two of the first people that I showed the book to were my film agents. Uh, number one, because I, you know, need to let them know, like, this is what I've been doing, you know, um, that this is something that's important to me, uh, I'm really happy with it, but I want your honest feedback. Um, I didn't have a lot of expectations, honestly. Like, I had written it for myself, I had a story I wanted to tell. I felt like there was something there. I thought that there was something like really engaging and enjoyable about the story, but I, I honestly wasn't like, oh, I'm gonna get some amazing book deal out of this. I thought it'd be great to find some kind of publisher. Right. Um, my, I showed it to my film agents in LA, and they really flipped over the book, and they got very excited about it. And that was the first really like positive, like, okay, like, there is something here. And so then we strategized. And, and, what, and, and because, you know, they're film agents. They don't work in books either. Um, but, but we, I, you know, having worked in Hollywood for a number of years, um, I know a lot of producers uh, who do work in the, in the, in the book trade. And, um, or, you know, who, like, have adapted books, who have option projects. And so we talked to a few producers that we knew, who we knew did a lot of, like, book-to-film adaptations. And we said, like, who are the agents you like to work with? Like, who are the people who... Um, you know, who you feel are like really good agents, but also like get the film business, are just like good 
people smart on their game. Um, so we got a, a bunch of names, and one name kept coming up over and over again. Right. And it was Simon Lipscar, uh, who is the president of Writer's House, which is sort of one of the big uh, literary agencies in New York. Now, I mean, they represent really big writers. Simon himself, as the president of the company, represents a lot of really big writers. It wasn't that I thought Simon was going to represent me, but we had a connection to him through a producer that I'd worked with who was willing to make the introduction. Right. And I was just, honestly, my, my true sense was if Simon will take a look at the book and recommend like a junior agent at the agency to take me on, that would be amazing, right? right? Um, now, the one really nice kind of coincidence came in here, and, and, and my sort of history in film played a really important part, which is that in 2013, Variety named me one of their 10 screenwriters to watch, right? And that's like a thing they do every year. They choose 10 up-and-coming screenwriters, and they kind of put their little, you know, they're a little kind of, they anoint them, <laughs> right? And I mean, like, it's, it's great. It was super fun. I mean, like, obviously, I was delighted. Uh, but um, what, what it, in terms of how it affected my, my publishing career, one of the other screenwriters to watch was Jonathan Tropper, who had been a novelist, a very successful, best-selling novelist for a number of years, but he had recently adapted his own novel, This Is Where I Leave You, into the Sean Levy movie that with like Tina Fey, Jason Bateman, Adam Driver. And I had made a movie with Adam Driver, uh, The F Word. Yep. And so we, there was like a panel and like a dinner where we all met. And I actually knew his books. I'd read a bunch of his books. I was a fan of his as a novelist. We had made a movie uh, we both made movies with Adam Driver, so we sort of had something to talk about. I mean, it wasn't like we were like like BFFs or anything like that, but we had met and like right. had a nice conversation. And then I had been working on a movie with Alan Ball, the um, the, the Oscar-winning writer of American Beauty and showrunner from yeah, Six Feet Under yeah. and um, True Blood. And and um, by coincidence, Jonathan uh, had his show Banshee had been picked up. Uh, and Alan was the executive producer. On, uh, he, like he wasn't super hands-on, but he was shepherding the project forward. So we just had a bunch of like industry connections, which which was nice. Um, it turns out that Simon was Jonathan's book agent, um, and so when we sent it to Simon, I called Jonathan and I sort of said like, look, I'm not asking for anything. I'm not asking you to read anything, I'm not asking you to do anything. I just want you to know we're, we're sending the, the book to your agent. I don't want it to be weird. Right. If for some reason you hear about it, and you're like, why didn't you call me or anything? Right. And he's like, totally, like, very much appreciate that. I, you know, thank you for not asking me to read it. Um, uh, but I'll, 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 you know, but he, he really liked my movie. Uh, he really liked the F word. And so he's like, I'll just, I'll just let Simon know that I know you. I think you're a good guy and a good writer. He's like, and he said, he's like, he's not going to sign you, just so you know. You know, like he's not going to sign you. He's very, very busy, and I've been with him for years and years and years. But you know, if he likes the book, he'll he'll find somebody for you. And I'm like, great, like that that would be a dream come true. Um, so as it turned out, Simon actually like really loved the book, and not only did he want his company to represent it, he wanted to represent it himself. So um, and it was very unexpected and amazing because I mean, he's you know, I, I don't, he's one of the top yeah, book agents sure. like in the world, and uh, so already this was far beyond. What I was expecting, right? But uh, and then Simon had a, you know, I mean, he's a very smart guy, you know. He had some notes which were great, uh, and so I, we, we did a little bit. I did a polish based on his notes, uh, which were all spot on. And then he developed a strategy in conjunction with my film agents on how to take the book out. And he had a specific time he wanted to take it out. He knew exactly who he wanted to take it to, and 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 then we we executed his plan. And um, when you're working with somebody who like sees all the dimensions of the business at once, you're like, first of all, it was an amazing education in how the publishing business works. And you're also like, oh, it's like sitting back and like watching like a really experienced general plan a campaign, you know? So, I, I mean, what can you tell us about what, like, what did he, like, 
inside his mind, what did he, like, can you somehow paint a picture of the field that he saw? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I, I, I don't want to speak for him because, I mean, inevitably, he, he understands the business so much better than I do even now that I, I would only misrepresent. But I'll tell you my, my sense of it, which is that... Um, the Frankfurt Book Festival was coming out, the Frankfurt Book Fair was coming out, which is one of the sort of two biggest book fairs in the world, London, I think, being the other one, which is usually, I think, in, uh, in March. Mm -hmm. Frankfurt's in the fall. So you have buyers from all over the world there. And, and um, uh, that's a great place to launch a book, or to, to sell a book, as well as if you can get a splashy sale, then all the foreign buyers from all the different other countries are there, right? And, um, and so, you know, we. He had this. He, you know, he, he believed in the book, and he believed like if we got. Point to, sorry, point yeah. point point to know here. Sure. He's your agent right now. You haven't actually sold it. No. To Random House. No, no, no. This is he, this is the first step was getting a book agent right. who okay. would take it out. Okay. So then we took it out on, on you know took it out on the town. Right. I mean, essentially, also part of understanding how to sell a book is like you know, a sophisticated agent knows, okay, these are the editors who like books like this or who might be looking for books like this or who have a mandate. These are the imprints at the different publishers that that might be favorable towards this. So it wasn't just which publisher, it's which imprint, which editor, at which imprint, at which publisher is the person to send this to. Because you also have to be careful. A lot of imprints are owned by the same publishing company. A lot of editors are at the same company. Like, you can't you, you have to be respectful of those divisions while recognizing who's the best, who's going to really flip out over this book, right? right? Because you're also like, and, and, and understanding that it's like, like they need, they, they want books that they can be passionate about as well. If you send a, an amazing book to the wrong editor. That's it, you're done. I mean, it doesn't help anybody. Right. They're like, well, I don't, I'm not interested in this kind of book. Why would you send this to me? Um, so he was very good also about figuring out who would be the right, like who, who, who he thought would be favorable to it just based on, on their taste, you know? And then we sent it out, and, and we were really fortunate. We had, um, we had a very quick response. Um, and uh, from a couple different, public, like several different publishers were all interested. So we were able to get into a situation where we had multiple offers. We had a competitive situation, which again was, not what I was expecting at all, mm -hmm. um, but obviously I was I welcomed it, um, and so then you when and then just for people who don't sort of understand how the, how it works in publishing, you know um, I had a series of conversations with different acquisitions editors uh, because you're also trying to hear like what do they think, what are they getting out of it, what are they you know you go into it also like they're going to have editorial notes, what what but do they think could be improved at this point from what I gather it sounds like. Your agent saw not only the, the book route, but was also tangentially going along the movie route at the same time. So well, that's where my film agents came in. Right, okay. Um, so part of the strategy was when we sent it out to publishers, yeah. we simultaneously sent it out to a select group of production companies. Um, and so essentially we went out to both at the same time. We said, this is, uh, this is going out to publishers. And, and by the way, publishers were also sending it out to all these top producers. Um, and to the producers we said, while we're giving it to you, it's also out to all the publishers. So, and does that mean, just because the people who are listening to this are going to be very interested, does that mean that the rights, the, the, the publishing company knew they would not get film rights in the, in the, in the, in the, yeah. the, the, the opposite side? And, yeah, everybody, and everybody's cool with that. Well, look, I mean, here's the thing. You have to have confidence in the thing you're taking. You can, right. you're, you know, anybody can do that. You can, you can do, anybody out there with a book can say, I'm going to send it to the publishers and simultaneously to the top movie producers and I'm going to try to ignite a competitive bidding war. Well, if nobody likes it, it doesn't matter, right? I mean, like, so keep in mind, like, again, you know, like, we had a strategy and my agents were confident in the material, but it's like, it's not like we, any of this was assured. We were taking risks, absolutely. Um, but we got a number of publishers interested and I, in addition to just, you know, 
having Penguin Random House publish the book, I mean, it's obviously like a slam dunk. They're an amazing company. Um, I mean, like, you know, you look at their list of all the, I mean, it's ridiculous, right? Um, and also just Dutton, the imprint that is publishing me, and the editor, Maya Zeev, uh, who became my editor, I just like really connected with her. I, like, I, I really liked her, the way she talked about the book. Um, we just had a great conversation. It just felt like a great home for the book. And, um, you know, we we also had, because I'm Canadian, we, we actually sold it in the U.S. first, but mm -hmm. right after that we, we made a deal with Doubleday here at Penguin Random House Canada. Um, and likewise in the U.K. with Michael Joseph Books, which is another division of Penguin Random House. So we, we stayed with Penguin Random House all around, in like in all major English language territories, right. but they are different imprints in the different countries. Um, so simultaneous with that, we went out to uh, a bunch of different production companies and uh, ha fortunately had a bunch of interest in people... Um, coming Are you allowed on board. to say here which company it's with right now? Oh yeah, I can say which one okay. we chose. We yeah. went with, I went with Amy Pascal. Okay. Um, so she had left Sony yep. and had started her own production company. She, you know, her first movie was Ghostbusters, the Ghostbusters reboot. She's got the new Spider-Man movie coming out this summer. Uh, one of other big high-profile movies. Um, and again, I mean, like, I was really lucky. Uh, I had a, a lot of, like, amazing producers. It was a really heady, like, you know, week where I was like, you know, the list of producers that I was talking to every day was insane. Right. Even as a screenwriter who had worked, sorry, bumped the thing. Even as a screenwriter yeah. who works in Hollywood all the time, like this was, like I was talking to all the biggest producers in Hollywood. It was crazy. Um, but I, again, it was like, Amy just really got the book. I mean, I had a tremendous amount of respect for her. She's like incredibly smart and has such a sophisticated sense of how to make movies. I mean, um, but at the same time, know. I just, I, the way she talked about the book and the collaborative process, I just felt like she, she, she got it, you know? Because having been a screenwriter for a long time, like, and, and you mean, you know, you've made movies too. It's like, you're looking for a team where everybody wants to make the same movie. And it doesn't always happen. Sometimes you realize, sometimes too late, that you're trying to make, that, oh, like, I thought we saw the same movie, but this is like, we're actually trying to make a different movie with the same piece of material. And so I was looking for somebody that felt like we were trying to make the same movie, and Amy was a great fit. And then... Are you writing the first draft? Yeah, I, I finished, I, I'm, I'm working on the script right now. Okay. Yeah, and so, um, and then uh, Paramount was really very, very aggressive about wanting it. And so, um, we and we had a lot of interest, but Paramount was they, they made a sort of like a preemptive offer, and uh, between me and Amy and her team um, made the decision, and we just like really liked what they had to say, and so we made the deal with Paramount. So Paramount's the studio, right. and uh, Amy through Pascal Pictures is the producer, and I'm writing the movie. That's amazing. Yeah, it's such a dream story. Yeah, kind of the, 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 when you when you when you listen to the story and I hear the whole thing, there are so many little dominoes that could have fallen the right way or the wrong way oh. but at the end of the day it just like I think people who are listening to this I know you're very humble about you know it, it could have gone this way or that way but at the end of the day people who are listening to this and on, on really all the credit to you it always comes down to the material it always comes down to the creative and you know what no matter how humble you are Alan I'm going to say you wrote a damn good book wow. it is a fucking good book and I'm just going to say it and, that, and the credit goes to that I mean, yeah. it's like I th it's serendipitous that you had that history and all those connections, and maybe somebody who hadn't had those connections maybe wouldn't have been as lucky, but at the end of the day, it's a good book. The creative is solid. Thank you. No, I mean, like, I, I appreciate that, and I'm obviously very, very proud of the book, and I mean, probably, the, in some ways, the best decision I made was yeah. I didn't show it to anybody until, like, I did, like, three full drafts of the novel before I, I even showed it to anybody, and because I just, I was like, if I'm going to 
if I'm going to put this out in the world, like I, I really need to, I mean, I've never done this before. I want to go out, you know, I want to be armed with the best possible book. And so I was very hard on myself before I ever showed it to anyone. No, it's not a simple book either. That's no. the other thing. Like people, people who haven't read this book, and I, I really, really, really encourage anybody who is listening to this to, to pick up your book. Uh, first of all, All Our Wrongs Today comes out when? February, uh, sorry, February 7th. Okay, so February 7th, read the book, and I want people who are listening to this to go and read this book, and then think about how it's going to be a movie, because these are, I've got about 50 different questions in my, in my head that I can't ask you right now, because it's all about, the, we're going to have right. to do this again right. when we come to the movie. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, is that there, there's a lot of really big plot twists, obviously, like, I mean, it's a very, like, there's a lot of twists and turns, there's a lot of huge character revelations, secrets are revealed, things happen that you're not going to expect when you yep. start reading the book, and so there's a lot of, you know, obviously, you you, you can veer, veer very quickly into spoiler territory. But, I mean, I know this is a business podcast, so it's fun to talk about the deal and stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I do. I mean, that would be the thing more than anything. It's like, you have to be really, you have to find that balance. You have to be hard on yourself to write the best possible thing, to never, like, if there's any way to make it better, do it. Don't don't say, you know what, I'll fix it later. Like, if, if you know, because a great piece of material opens so many doors. I mean, I'm, you know, even when I was doing it, it's like, well, maybe I should show somebody. I'm like, no, it's not there yet. Wait until it's ready. At the same time, you don't want to wait forever. You don't want to feel paralyzed. You don't want to feel overwhelmed because inevitably, when you're, anytime you're doing something special for the first time, you're not going to totally know what you're doing. So it is a balance, you know? I mean, the other thing that happened, just to kind of finish off the sort of narrative, is like, um, the plan with Frankfurt worked as well because we sold the, we had a big splashy, you know, English language book sale, US, Canada, UK. We sold the movie rights and then we went to Frankfurt and then we ended up selling the book in like 25 languages. So it's being translated into more than two dozen languages. And all of those things played off each other. That was the strategy, right? And again, just to reiterate, yeah, yeah. you can have a strategy and have it fail. In this case, it worked. So that kind of like trio of a big splashy um, English language sale the sale of the movie rights, uh, with me attached as the screenwriter, and uh, the sale of like, you know, uh, 25 foreign territories, it kind of had this, like each of those things played off each other. Um, you know, the studios, of course, right now, international sales, international box office is huge, so for them to know, oh, like this book is gonna be translated into Chinese, Russian, French, Spanish, South Korean, all these different languages, it gave them that ex extra confidence to be aggressive about right. it, you know? For the English language publisher to be like, oh, like there's gonna be a movie. You know, like we're already, we, you know, we've acquired the book and we, you know, we haven't even started editorial and there's already a movie deal in place. That gives them the confidence to kind of like be aggressive in the, in the auction, you know, for the book. And all those things kind of play off of each other. I was really, I mean, it, it was very much a dream come true and also kind of a perfect storm. I don't know, I don't know if I'll ever be in that situation again, but I'm, I'm damn grateful I was. Are you going to write another book? Yeah, I'm about, I'm about two-thirds of the way through the second, the next novel. It's, it's unrelated to this one. It's a new yep. story. I really, um, I made it, again, it's the same thing. I made a decision for myself. I wanted to have as much of it done as possible before the first one came out. Not just, um, not just because, uh, you know, you go on a book tour, you don't have time to write, but also because, I, I, you know, whatever happens with the book, people love it, people hate it, so everywhere in between, you don't, you don't know when you put it out into the world. I, I wanted to write, the first book I wrote without any expectations. You know, I didn't have a publishing deal. No one was asking me to write a novel. Um, I wrote it because I had a story to tell, and, I, and a story that I was so passionate about, it was worth taking the gamble. Likewise, with the second book, I, I, I knew that once the book came out, there'd be expectations, which is fine, mm -hmm. I can handle it, but I, I wanted to write as much of the book as possible with no expectations, and so that's what I've done. So it's about two-thirds of the way through, and I'm, I'm kind of in the, um, in the home stretch now. 
is there any relation to like space or sci-fi? Is it a sci-fi genre? Yeah, ish. It, it's similar to the to the first one in that like I take a big sci-fi idea, right. um, one that people would reckon like you know in the first book it's like time travel. Everybody knows time yeah. travel, but this is my very unexpected take on time travel. For the second book, it's similar. I'm taking a big sci-fi idea, but I'm kind of doing a very grounded, very human, very unexpected take on that idea. Right. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll do that one in three years from now. Sounds good, yeah. Um, <laughs> Look forward to it. A couple other things, just while we have you for, because I know you're, you're doing back-to-back meetings, we have for you for another, another few minutes. Okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just fire off a, f- a few last questions. For sure. You. Okay. Uh, your writing practice every day. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people... Craft oriented. Do you what's what's your what's your what's your writing day look like? I mean, honestly, I treat it like a day job. Like yep. I, I'm at my desk by like nine thirty, ten o'clock. I write until I take a break for lunch. I write, take a coffee break. I write until five thirty, six. Um, you know, I have a wife, I have kids, I have a dog, I have a, I, you know, I have a life. And I, I try to treat it like a job because I try not to overly romanticize the creative process. Now. I do take, I, I mean, I totally romanticize the creative process. I, you know, I mean, I, I, I love being a writer. I love living inside my imagination. But I don't find it helpful in terms of getting stuff done. For me, it's, it's, a, it's also a job. Um, and what, what allows me to be a professional writer, to make my living as a writer, which is amazing, right, which is a dream, is that I just, I treat it like a job. I'm at my desk. I write. I don't wait to be inspired. What I find personally is that inspiration finds you when you're already working. So that's how I did it, and you know whether it's writing a screenplay or a book, I just stick to it, and I also give my perce- myself permission to write badly if that's where I'm at, you know, because I'll fix it later. Do you come up with? Are you, do you, are you looking for ideas during the writing process, or do you wait for an idea to, or like, is it just it just doesn't matter? You just it's both. You're writing. Yeah, just sit yeah. down and start writing. I mean, yeah. inevitably, you know, I mean, I have, you know, I, if I'm in the middle of, of something, you know, whatever I was working on yesterday, I continue on. But what I find is like it. it the best ideas happen when you're already writing. They don't happen before you're writing. They happen when you're writing. And I find like when you when you it's like um, it's like it's like working out. It's like going for a run. It's like anything. It's like you got to warm up, you know. And so for me, even just starting the writing, even if I know it's not going to be the absolute best, the the process of writing just kind of warms me up, and that's when the ideas start flowing. So I never wait to be inspired. I find like yeah, like to me, it's like. I feel like inspiration naps until you start writing, and then it kind of like inspiration like wakes up. It's like oh oh, we're working now. Okay, let's get to it. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Uh, that's going to become a meme of some, of some variety. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just want to th- thank you again for taking the time, doing this, uh, sharing these thoughts with, uh, with our audience. Um, I, you know, the funny thing is, again, I just I want to go into some of the t- detail of this book so bad with yeah. you, but I can't spoil it for people. Well, we can t- when we turn off the mic, we can, we're, we're, uh, we're we can have talk. That. We're going yeah. to do that, and then I'll do a, a spoiler episode in about uh, a year from now. That would be great. Like that. Anyway, Alain Mestai, thank you so much for stopping by. We are in the offices, in the bubble here of, uh, of Random House. Yeah. Uh, how, many, how, many, uh, um, how many interviews have you done today? This will be my sixth today. Yeah. yeah. And I think I have eight. Uh, yeah, it's a long day, but they're all different. I mean, yeah. this, like, you know, we're talking, the stuff we're talking about today is different than the one I just did on, you know, I did a, one on Interspace, and we talked about a lot of geeky sci-fi stuff, and then before that I did eTalk, and that was more kind of like, a, a little more broad, but, but um, you know, we talked about sort of, uh, you know, a bunch of other elements of it, like each conversation is different. Right. You know, I did, you know, you do a literary blog, you're talking about like, you know, the thematic resonances of it. I mean, it's great. I mean, as a screenwriter, like, I've participated in the publicity for my movies, but it's very different, you know, it's, it's fun to be able to dig into the stuff with people. Oh, well, thank you for giving us a peek behind the hood. LMSI. Thanks very much. February 7th. February 7th. February 7th. Yeah. 
wherever uh, wherever you, you still buy paper. Yeah, and well, digital. yeah, you can go online. There's <laughs> I, an, I, I narrated the audiobook. Oh yes. Yeah, if you want to hear my voice telling you the story. Oh, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Oh, that's gonna. How, how many hours did it take you to record the whole thing? Uh, it was four eight-hour days in the studio, yeah. uh, for what is a ten-hour audiobook. I've always wondered about that. Does your voice go like? Are you, are you like your horse at the end of the experience? By, by the end of it, yeah, it's like I, you know, it's like, uh, like you know. I started narrating it, and I'm Woody Allen, and I finished narrating it, and I'm Clint Eastwood. You know, like I definitely got like it was. You know, you start. It's like I feel like people are going to listen to him and be like, "Oh, like he's really getting into the emotion of the climax." Like, no, actually, like my voice was very hoarse. But no, I mean, there. You know, I work with a team right. that do this professionally, so they were actually very good at like, take a break. Here's what you need to do: get your voice back. Like, what like they actually. Experience. Yeah, it was a really fun experience, and it's funny because they treat you like an athlete, like your vocal cords or your muscles. Right. So it was, and, and and just as a writer to actually read your book aloud from start to finish um, it, it was actually a remarkable experience even though I, I would again it's one of those things never in a million years what I, when I started when I came up with the idea would I have thought that I'd narrate my own audiobook but having done it it was actually a remarkable opportunity fantastic thanks again for taking the time thanks for having me great so I hope you enjoyed that episode I, and you got something out of it just you know the funny thing is I, again I keep saying this it takes time to warm up we were just getting into the you know some of the really good stuff and Alan was sandwiched between like I don't know as he mentioned in the podcast 19 meetings so uh, we had him for a very specific amount of time uh, and so I tried to get as much into this episode as I could so again if you liked it um, and you want more of this stuff or you know tell me what you like leave a comment subscribe it really helps you can also as I mentioned at the beginning Check it out on YouTube uh, at uh, youtube.com forward slash Jesse Eichmann and you can watch Elan and I uh, talk about some of the highlights. Uh, I don't put the, the whole thing isn't up there, but the highlight reel is. So if you want to go there and just check in with with some of those things or check out what it was like to have this conversation over at Random House, you can can see us in our sort of glass bubble over there. Uh, Anyway... Uh, thanks again for listening. I uh, really, really appreciate it. Um, and, and again, I, I know I said it in the podcast, but, uh, but I, if, if you like sci-fi novels, trust me, you're going to love this book. It, it, was a, it was a lot of fun to read. Um, and um, yeah, we'll see you, see you soon.